Welcome to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, also known as the URM Jam, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. On this podcast, we will address the real and perceived barriers faced by historically underrepresented in medicine students and residents who are considering a career in academic family medicine. We'll provide practical tips and personal advice on topics like leadership, scholarly activity, CVs, mentorship, and more. I'm Dr. Omari Hodge. And I'm Dr. Tochi Iroku Maliz. And this is URM Jam. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of STFM's URM Jam. And we are excited today, Dr. Amari Hodge and myself, to welcome members of our audience to come and speak today, ask us questions live, and we're going to do our best to answer them appropriately, (laughs) and if not, refer them to the appropriate resources. And so we're going to have each of them introduce themselves. So we'll get started. Hi, I'm Carice Downer. I am a PGY2 at um, Northeast Georgia in Gainesville. Um, Family medicine is my specialty. Hi, everyone. I'm Mutia Enikamai. I'm also a PGY2 um, family medicine resident with Northeast Georgia Medical Center in Georgia. Hi, I'm Carolyn Alvarez. I am a PGY3 at Peconic Bay Medical Center in Riverhead, New York. Hello, I'm Moses Sildard. I am a PGY3 at Glencove, New York. Hey, I'm Abdullah Pinchbaya. I'm currently a PGY3 at Northeast Georgia Medical Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Hi, yeah, my name is Alexis Perlman, and I'm a recent graduate from MCG in Georgia going into family. Welcome all. We're so glad to have you. We're honored. I think this is going to be a high yield episode because I think this is where the rubber meets the road, answering yes, questions yes. from you guys. This is why we do this. Yep. So absolutely. we're looking forward to seeing what you have for us. So we're going to kick it off with uh, questions from each of you. Carice? Okay, so academic medicine has always been something that's been an interest of mine, but I feel like the further I get into my residency, the further I'm like, oh my God, there's so many things I still have to learn, so many things I need to know. So my question for you guys is, do you think it's wise for me to consider academic medicine right out of residency, or would you suggest I get some real world experience before I go back into academic residency? That's a great question. I want to be brief because we have a lot of people who want to ask questions, but let me just say this. My own personal journey, one of the things that I regret, and maybe regret is a strong word, but one of the things that I often consider is whether or not I should have went into academic medicine straight out of residency. And now that I'm on this side of the fence, I I really wish I would have. I, I don't think I had enough understanding about what academic medicine looks like and all the avenues it touches and all the ways that you can find yourself while doing academic medicine. So I certainly don't see it as a disadvantage. On the other side of that coin, and I'll let Dr. Toshi talk to this a little bit more, there's obviously a value to having people who have lived life down another path in medicine, and they bring that to academic medicine. From my perspective, I I don't know that there's a wrong or a right way, maybe just the best way for you. Dr. Toshi, what do you think? I agree with you on this one because, you know, both of us, we both came into this two different pathways. So we have two different perspectives, but at the end of the day, we ended up in the same place. (laughs) So, but the one thing I will say is that I try and tell everyone that no matter what it is you decide to do, have a little bit of that on the side as part of your side hustle, I would say. So if you're going to be doing clinical medicine and you really think academic medicine is something that you want to do, 
then you should probably think about offering to give a lecture to the residency program or to the medical students to have a student or a resident come to your office and and, and shadow you or you can precept them. Uh, just have those little opportunities. Sign up to, you know, for journal club to help moderate a journal club. So keep your foot a little bit wet in the, in that area so that when you're ready to jump in, then you're good to go. But do not hesitate because you feel you are not worthy of pursuing this career. You that that should not be the reason you don't do it. A little bit of fear is good for everything, but don't have that doubt that I'm not good enough to be in academic medicine today. Okay. So if an opportunity presents itself and you really want to do it now, jump for it. If you want to go and do clinical first for a while or research, do that, but keep your foot in in academic medicine. All right. All right. Let's go to our second question. I think Dr. Muriat, you have a question for us, huh? Um, yeah, so actually going right off what you said, Dr. Hodge, about um, you not knowing enough about academic medicine, I have all kinds of ideas of what it looks like and what that would mean for me and for the, the people that I'm mentoring or teaching. Are there any misconceptions that you had going in to academic medicine that you were like, whoa, I wish I knew that or I, knew, I wish I knew it looked like this? I think that would be helpful to to know. I I can start answering this one first, uh, Dr. Mari, then you can jump in after. What I wish I knew was that there are politics in academic medicine, just like there are politics in any other any other aspect of healthcare. And so you're going to have to navigate um, the relationships with the other people in other specialties and even those within our own specialty, because people are trying to move ahead or there are limited there's limited funding available for projects. So there's something that's near and dear to your heart, but you may want to move forward with. But then the resources aren't enough for you to do it. But then you now have you're pitted against somebody else in your department that you have to do. Or even when you want to create curriculum, there's something really good or something really important that you say that, you know, the students really need to learn this. The residents really need to learn this. But there's not enough time in the academic calendar. There's so much that they have to learn. That you have, if you put this in, they're going to say, okay, then what do we pull out? And then also just, just understanding time management because a one hour lecture doesn't take one hour to do. <laughs> so, and just being very mindful of that and, and making sure that you give yourself time, extra space to create those sessions that you want to, to, to create. So those are some of the things that I, I wish I knew going in uh, that I try to advise those who are interested in academic medicine to pay attention to these things as you're moving forward. Dr. Mari? I'm glad you took that approach because mine was a little bit more shallow. (laughs) I wish I wish (laughs) I would have known that you can like have a good living in academic medicine coming out. I, I think that was one of the reasons I kind of veered off into a different path. And because at the time when I came out, I just heard some of the salaries for some of these other these other pathways in family medicine, and they sounded so appealing. And then I didn't know that there were ways in in academic medicine to earn a good wage consistent with all the years that I've put in school and what advancement looks like and how that translates into um, rewards financially. Don't get me wrong. I I do this because I love it, but I don't mind getting paid for what I do either. (laughs) So I think if I would have talked to some people who or would have allowed people to mentor me who were doing this and had seen some financial success while doing what they love, um, that might've got me into it a little sooner. That's just my my thought process. Okay, so uh, Caroline? So I am very passionate about clinical medicine, but I also am also interested in academic medicine too. Would you say that 
it's possible to balance both of those? Or do you think that it's important to kind of pick one and then have the other one as like a little side thing? That's a great question. I can only talk to you from my experience and from the people who I know. And so from what I've seen, yes, you are able to have a balanced a balanced approach in medicine from academic medicine and clinic medicine. Or really, I, I shouldn't even say like that because I don't want to separate clinical medicine from academic because it really is a part of what we do, right? But I do think from what I'm hearing you, yeah, you can spend time seeing patients and have a patient panel at the same time that you're training other people and learning how to mentor the future. And as a matter of fact, I would think that the people who do it the best are those who still like the clinical aspect of medicine. I mean, I do. I have met a few people who they 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 dread <laughs> they dread going into the office that things have changed, and that's more because of stuff like they grew up in a different time period where it was paper charting, and now we have electronic health records and all those things. But for the most part, I think most people who enjoy practicing medicine tend to be good teachers and tend to want to impart something to the next generation. Now the the kicker is going to be is this, is that the better you are at it, and Dr. Tochi probably can attest to this, many times you'll find yourself fighting to get back in the clinic because there are just so many other functions that are needed. But the good news is, is that you control the seasons when those things happen. And what I mean by that is like advancement opportunities. So let's say you started out being core faculty. You don't have to all of a sudden become an associate program director or become a program director or getting to, you know, becoming a DIO. You can stay in that season of being a faculty member so that allows you to have a little piece of your clinic and still mentor the, the residents for, for however long you think is necessary. But um, that's a good question. I, I'd i like to hear uh, Dr. Tochi's answer to see her perspective. So um, I'm going to say that pivoting on, you know, just or taking going forward with what you just said about the, your season. As a faculty, you're going to, well, at least especially in New York, you're going to need to st- do the four sessions at least of primary care on your own without a patient. So you're going to have to do clinical work anyway, solo clinical work, a direct prim- uh, clinical work. And then you have the other ones where you're teaching, either precepting or, or doing other uh, sorts of uh, education, research, et cetera. So it's possible. Yes, it's possible to do those. And if that's what you want to do for the rest of your life, that's fine. But again, with family medicine, we're very fortunate that we're able to pivot and move to different things that as, as our careers change, as our passions change, as where we live changes. Um, so as you move up the ranks, though, you may find yourself with more administrative roles besides the teaching. So this is becoming more of an administrator within academic medicine where you now have to take on. And what usually falls by the wayside is a little bit of the clinical time. And so that's when you now try and carve it out and figure out how to do it 30, 30, 30, or whatever numbers you have to do to maintain it. But one thing you must do is always maintain clinical interactions because otherwise, how do you know, how do you know what's going on with your, the frontliners, the, your students, your learners, with your faculty, with the other doctors who are not faculty? So you have to understand that whole uh, spectrum. So. Yes, the answer is yes, you can manage. You can do both. Uh, Usually contracts are built that way. So when you're making your contract, uh, just make sure they specify what time, how much of the percentage of your time is dedicated clinical time with just you, how much is dedicated to teaching and what what does teaching mean? Is teaching precepting? Is teaching a part of research? Is, you know, things like that. So have all those things uh, delineated as you're before you sign. Okay, so we're going on to Moses, you're up. Yes. Hi. So my question was um, specifically when choosing a new job in academic medicine and 
especially as a URIM candidate, what questions would you ask during the interview process to discover whether the culture of the institution is inclusive? So Dr. Mari, do you want to, you want to start or do you want me to start? Sure, sure. I can jump in. That's a great question. You know, it's one that I think often is left unsaid. And I think in, in a world of indirectness and compliment sandwiches, I think this is one of those that I actually I'm sorry. Did you say compliment sandwiches? That's okay. what they do nowadays. I know. Let me just let me just put some snacks in there for you. Okay, go ahead. It's go like ahead. you can't you can't even say anything without making somebody feel good first. So I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I'm aging myself now. But I, I think this is one of the areas where it's okay to be uh, direct. You, I think it's okay to say, you know, are you guys intentional? about recruiting people from diverse backgrounds, because I've studies show and, and I've personally found that it's valued. I, I don't think it's, this is one of those. It's kind of like a, a, it's a question that's almost important as you're, you're earning. You're like, you want to ask specific questions about how much you're getting paid. It should be laid out. And I think the same thing comes with the environment that you're going to be working in. Like, are there any incentives that you offer? Are there any are there any systemic practices in place that promote diversity amongst the faculty? amongst the my, my the people who I'm going to be working with, the people who I'm training, things of that nature, because it's important. And I think a lot of the studies that we're seeing coming out now, I just, I just the other day read an article that was talking about people who are falling out of residency and how there's a disproportionate number of Black physicians who are getting into programs, but they're not finishing compared to their white counterparts. And I think one of the functions of that is not having enough faculty who they can identify as support us, support people who they can support and uh, be transparent with. And that takes intentional effort. So I think just being open and then, you know, doing your homework, you can look at the website, see what what the pictures look like on the website, look at the executive team, see what they look like, Um, because people will say one thing, but what they're posting on the world sometimes will answer your questions or give you the questions to ask when you come into the interview. So that's that's kind of been my experience. Yeah. So I'm going to tell y'all to Get your pens ready because I'm about to give you some questions that you're going to ask. Because <laughs> so, everything that Dr. Amari said, and then th- these are these are the specific questions you are going to ask. You're going to first thing say, what successful strategy has your organization used to recruit and retain URM faculty? Nice. And let them tell you. Let them and just be and have your notepad and pen and just be writing down whatever they say. And you say, okay, very good. And do you have any social networks that are available for URM faculty? Because yes, they say they have strategies. Okay. But is a social network available for mm. them to interact with each other and be able to be themselves, right? Mm. To be in a safe environment. What resources are allocated? Is it in the budget for the institutional support? Because it's one thing to say, we have this task force, we have this committee. That's right. What resources, what budget, how, you know, what is the Mm -hmm. budget line for the institutional support that they're supposed to have for the URM faculty to help support them? And then they should describe for you, because if if you look at the website and all the senior leaders are of one shade and, you know, all of the housekeeping and janitorial and food service, et cetera, and, and are, are of a different shade of color. Ask them, what is Because, the, okay, they, maybe they're not there yet. Maybe they are planning on getting there. So what is their pipeline? What, what is the pipeline's process for URM faculty to pull in and get underrepresented medicine faculty? And then finally, if they've given you a wonderful, wonderful story, ask them, what barriers do they see? that would prevent them from having that inclusive culture within their organization? Because sometimes that answer 
tells you the truth. Because if they say, well, you know, they're just not enough mm-hmm. underrepresented medicine people out mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. then you just are, that tells you right away. Mm-hmm. Oops, you just mm-hmm. told me your culture. Right. <laughs> because if they, if that's the answer uh, that we can't find them, they're not out there. Then you ju- then you, everything else they told you, you could just throw it away, and that's their true answer. And watch and pay attention to their body language <laughs> and asking these questions. Yes, I am so telling you, you will yes. see. Yes. People having all kind of conniption fits <laughs> as you ask these questions. So that will give you a clue as to whether yeah. or not yeah. you can trust this organization. Yeah, exactly. All right. I think it's Dr. Punch by his turn. Yeah. So any of my colleagues on the opposite end can probably tell you that I'm a glutton for academic medicine, much to your chagrin often. But my question is going to be, as I've gone through the interview process, one of the things I've realized is that as a J1 candidate, getting an academic position in residency, like in a residency program, right out of residency is almost not impossible. There's almost no residency that's willing to kind of sponsor that waiver process. So as those people who are now on on interview committees that are looking at applicants and hiring applicants, you guys kind of touched before kind of be, you know, involved with medical students and things of that nature. But when that person's kind of applying into a faculty position three or four years out of academic medicine, maybe some interest with medical students, what are the things you think they should kind of work on in that three or four years to kind of prop the resume up against those applicants who may have been in academic medicine for the last three or four years right out of residency? I can start off. Earlier, I said that, remember, keep your, you can always have a kind of like a side hustle, keep your, your, your toe in the water. So offer to give lectures. And unfortunately, this is going to be unpaid side hustle, right? So you know, offer to give a lecture because everybody, you, as residents, you all know that people, you know, they're, you're always looking for somebody to come and give a lecture. So be that person that's, that the residents know to call and say, oh, no, no, he's going to come in and do this lecture for us. So be ready to do that and stay on top of that information. You know, um, the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine, a great resource. Make sure you remember once you graduate, okay, and, and <laughs> avail yourself of those resources so you stay on top of what's going on in academics because medicine is changing. Things are going to change in the future. We're going to be more digitalized. There are going to be a lot of different learning opportunities, artificial intelligence and machine learning when it comes to education. So make sure you stay abreast of what's going on there. Just because you're not working um, as a faculty does not mean you cannot attend some of those sessions, right? You can still go to an STFM conference. You can still go to the noon conferences or whatever's happening at wherever you're working. CME sessions, offer to give some CME sessions, to teach CME sessions. You don't only have to teach physicians. You can teach nurses. You can teach PAs. You can teach others in clinical settings. That's helping to build up your resume. You're stacking up your resume. And if possible, reach out to those who are already in academic medicine. If everyone already knows you as that academic person, make sure these people, your colleagues who are going to graduate and move on, and if they become, or go into academic medicine, use that network, write papers together. You do not have to be in the same institution to write a paper together, right? You can write on academic medicine. You can write on topics that that regarding education. You can write op-eds regarding medicine and education and family medicine, et cetera, and things like that. So these are ways to just keep it on. The only thing I'm going to say is that, again, these are usually unpaid positions, um, but just these are ways to just keep it and then put it into your resume. Because if, and if you're a featured lecturer, you speak on the topics, whether it's for students, for residents, if you get, do grand rounds one day, if you 
have a, a presentation at a CME event and you've written an article here or an op-ed there, even within the school journal, medical school journal, you know, something like that. So go back to your med school, do some sessions with them. They love alumni to come back and, and teach some topics, right? So use them as a resource. Um, and now that you have Zoom and, and WebEx, you can do it internationally wherever you want. So you can teach in Greece from here where you are. So use all of those resources and stick them on your CV so that when you're ready to go and make sure you stay abreast of what's going on so that when you're ready to now apply for that position, your CV matches what the other people are doing. Okay. Yeah, I don't, have, I don't have much to add to that. The only thing I would say is what some of the things, uh, one of the things that I've heard that have become, become more popular, especially when you're dealing with J1 situations and you're interested in a- academic medicine, if you find institutions that have entertained J1s in the past, or maybe they haven't uh, entertained it because they don't know about it, you may ask whether or not they have immigration attorneys working with them, or if they don't, you might want to secure your own immigration attorney, because a lot of times, even though the rules for the J-1 visas are laid out and they do seem, for the most part, um, understandable, sometimes there are little caveats and pathways that you don't recognize that can allow you to move forward with organizations in certain areas. So so doing everything Dr. Uh, told you just laid out, because I think that's excellent. I don't really have anything to add to that, but also getting good legal advice, because sometimes there's misinformation or misunderstandings or confusion about the whole process. If, if not for yourself, Dr. Punch by then probably for some of those who are listening, just so that they know exactly where they stand while they're doing all those things that they told you talked about. All right. We have Alexis. Yeah, I wanted to ask for someone who has always loved teaching, interested in maybe going into academic medicine. I wanted to ask, what are the hardest parts about going into academic medicine and what makes it worth it in the end with all the work? I'm going to say the hardest part is just being humble enough to know that you don't know everything. Because I think the some of the worst teachers or worst people in academics are those that think they know everything and refuse to accept that they don't. You just, it's impossible. And so that was the only thing I was worried about. I, I mean, for if you, a good academic person, a good teacher is like worried the night before fixing their slides, making sure they have the latest information so that they don't give you wrong information. But then being humble enough to accept it when the student says, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Roku, a study just came out six o'clock this morning that contradicts everything you just said. And you're saying, right. OK, OK, <laughs> so right. I think just because you're an academic, you're supposed to be teaching. And not being up, that's the scariest thing is not knowing everything about the topic that you're about to teach. But uh, you just have to be humble enough to say, it's okay. Just just lay it out there and say, it's it's okay. We don't know. And that's why I preface this by with you guys and saying that we will answer the best of our ability, but what we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> so I think for me, that's the hardest. I don't think there's anything else harder than just being afraid that I don't know enough about the topic I'm about to teach. Uh, so, Dr. Murray, that's a great question. And thanks, Dr. Toshi. I think that was a great answer. And um, for me, I think I think the biggest thing to get over, especially as I told you, I took this very circuitous route was maybe that imposter syndrome, that that thought that I am the one who knows less than everybody else. And everybody seems to have it together. Because one of the things I noticed in the academic world is we 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 look really good. Like we 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 clean up really well on the outside. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, like if you just look at us, you mm-hmm. just think that we know everything. We've got everything down. Yeah. Everybody's CV is 12 pages long, you know, or more. 
Exactly. Right. <laughs> and you're like, and you're like, that's just not me. You know what I equate it to? It's kind of like there are people on, I'm going to take us to basketball for a second. So if you hate that, I'm sorry. You know, there are people who like can dribble and they can dribble fancy. They can dunk. They can do all this amazing stuff. But at the end of the day, the goal is to score two points. So however you yes. get that ball in the hoop, it doesn't matter. You just score. And so I just have to remind myself, you know what, just put one foot in front of the other. Let's get this presentation together and let's do the best I can do with this. Let's today clean up your CV and let's at least accurately reflect what you have. And let's not forget anything that might be relevant that you don't realize. And just putting one foot in front of the other. And before long, you'll look and you journey quite a ways and it looks impressive. And you'll be saying the same, the same story to somebody else. And, and I think what really makes it worth it is just being around people who, you know, will carry the torch into the future. You know, it's like medicine is a gift and um, none of us are eternal. And being able to know that I can play some small vestige in the future of tomorrow is really inspiring. It, it kind of excites me every day. It's kind of the reason why I do this. And so um, that's a great question. But um, yeah, that's kind of what makes it passionate for me anyway. Okay. So we've gotten the questions from those who are with us today. Now we've got a question that was posted on social media. And um, the question that was posed to us, and so Dr. Amari, since I'm reading it, you get to answer first. Okay, 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 all right. All right, here we go. They want to know our thoughts on how early career URM faculty can talk to superiors about their desire to attain leadership positions, be promoted, et cetera. Yeah, and I think, you know, you kind of alluded to that already, like during the interview process, you know, that's where it starts. From when you first decide to interview for that job, you should be thinking, okay, well, what's the next step? And I think one of the things you don't want to get pigeonholed into thinking is that leadership is a function of age or necessarily board scores or any of these things that may have been influential in terms of how you got into residency and medical school. I think if you demonstrate an aptitude and you have a passion for what you're doing and you recognize that you're ready for the next step, um, one of the mistakes often that people make is they think it's noble to just be silent about your ambitions. They'll notice my work ethic. Um, I don't have to say anything, but you really do have to be vocal um, because some people might think you're happy where you're at. Like if you're doing a good yes. job, yeah. then you're doing a good job, right? Yes. <laughs> so why yeah. am I going to change anything? But I think letting people know what you want and telling them that I, I'm ready for feedback to tell me what it takes to get to the next level is um, something you need to own. And it helps them understand what filter they need to use when they're looking at you as you move forward. And it also will help you recognize whether or not you're at the right place. I, I left an institution because I made it known clearly on several uh, occasions that I wanted to be looked at in a different light. I felt like I was ready for the next step and I was doing way over and above what needed to be done, demonstrating that. and despite my best efforts, that wasn't happening. So I packed up and took my journey down the road and I'm so yes. glad I did, you yeah, know, yeah. and yeah. Um, sometimes you have to do that. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's my little two cents. Let's listen mm-hmm. to Dr. Tochi. Just as you were speaking now, Dr. Mari, I real, I remembered I was a new, I had just finished residency. I was working and I went to speak to someone in leadership position, senior leadership position at the hospital I was in. And I said to them, because I was upset because my colleague had been promoted to a position and I was the one doing a lot of the operational work and I just was wondering what was going on. So I went and said, you know, curious, where do you see me? I didn't, I, I just asked them, I said, where do you see me in a few years? And the person said to me, 
well, I see you, you're married, you have kids. So I see you working maybe part-time as a clinician. And then I know, see, (laughs) there's like, there's a gasp in the, in the, the, (laughs) I see you working part-time as a clinician and the other time raising your children. So at that moment, I realized that this individual did not know me one bit, Wow! you know, and I just could not believe it. So I realized, okay. So I said, so let me correct you. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just correct you that. Okay. So that's why I say, okay, I understand. So that's why there's a disconnect because that is not my goal. I, I have a very, very lofty goal of where I want to be and what I want to do in this world. And then I laid it out that this is what I hope to do within the next few years. And so I learned from that. That was the moment. And I'm happy that happened to me early because otherwise I would have been sitting quietly and just watching by the sidelines. But because of that, I became very proactive. Anytime there was something coming up, if I saw a position, I would quickly say to someone, listen, you know what, that position that's opening up or that position that you may have, I'm interested in that. Mm. Um, This, you know, I'm looking at this, you know, I see this is happening. I'm interested in that. So. For those of you who are starting out, maybe the first thing to do is when you first start your job to say, okay, please tell me what my metrics are to show that I'm successful in this. And then what is the what is the pathway for promotion? Uh, Because I want to make sure that I'm not going, you know, going in the wrong direction. So as I'm working hard, I want to work smart for your organization. And I also want to make sure that I'm heading in the direction of promotion because eventually I see myself here in the next five years or in the next three years. So tell me what I need to do. And and so I want you to also hold me accountable. So when I come to you for my reports regularly, you will tell me yes or no, whether I'm hitting or missing. And then you also can gauge whether or not this is someplace you need to stay or whether you need to say goodbye and move to go somewhere else. Um, So yeah, so be just to be a little bit, uh, this one, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but you're going to have to have that conversation to say, I just want to know you know, how you're going to grade me to show that I'm doing well. When you're a student or resident, they're grading you all the time. Once you're attending, except for the metrics that that are dealing with payment structures outside of the organization and how the organization gets paid, people don't normally, unless there's a complaint, it's rare that people come up and say, okay, you just, you know, you're a B and we we need to move you a little bit more to get to an A in this area. It rarely happens. And so you need to be proactive in that and say, by the way, I just want to let you know, that I want to do this. And once they start to know that you're that person that likes to do things, work really hard, and but as you're working really hard in this, I'm still looking to tomorrow. I don't plan on being in this space forever. I'm doing this now, I'm working really hard, but I'm pulling the next person up behind me and have that person who's right behind you so that when opportunity knocks, you're able to step out so that somebody else takes your spot and you keep moving. That's great. And you know, sometimes, especially new residents, they might get used to that function of, Every year you automatically get that promotion. It's not so once you leave, you are not automatically getting promoted for doing good work. And so sometimes you have a good boss. I mean, I've seen people who really did a great job at recognizing talent and going above and beyond to push people onto their next. But that's I would say those, unfortunately, many times are the exception and not the norm. You really have to take Dr. Toji's advice at hand. Yeah. So, you know, this has been a wonderful time and I'll leave the final words with Dr. Tochi, but I certainly want to thank all your residents from your respective uh, schools, uh, your programs, I should say, for taking time out to ask these questions because you're not just helping yourself. 
you're helping all our listeners here who you'd be surprised where they are. We've had people in Japan and Australia mm-hmm. in Africa. Yep. So this is, this reaches all ends of the earth. So we really yes. appreciate that. Um, but Dr. Tochi, you have any last pearls or last words of wisdom before we go? Um, my last pearl, what we've been trying to tell everyone all season long is that um, you can be a URM academic medicine physician. Please yeah. do not think any less of that. You have the skills, you have what it takes. Everyone starts from somewhere. Yeah. Everyone's starting point will be a little bit different, but it doesn't matter. Your journey is yours. We are here to support you. Reach out, ask questions like you did today. Ask questions often. Find many, many, many mentors all over the place. And they don't all have to be in family medicine and they don't all have to be URM people as well. They could be anywhere. Just pull those, those people that support you, that have your back and do it and keep moving forward. And if you, even, and it, all of us don't have the same journey. Dr. Mario and I did not have the same journey to academic medicine. So just have your journey. Your journey is right for you. Do you. Thank you to all our guests today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for representing our audience that's out there. And again, thank you to that person online who submitted their question. We're very, very excited to share that information as Dr. Amari stated. We hope you've been enjoying this podcast series. Please consider filling out a two-minute survey to help us serve you better. Go to www.stfm.org slash urmjam to complete the survey and enter a raffle for a $25 Starbucks gift card. This raffle offer is good until September 29th, 2022. You've been listening to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers, as well as on our website at stfm.org slash urmjam. Follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. 